Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. The arts, or popular culture if you don't want to be highfalutin about it, tend to overlap. Many artists are writers, painters are filmmakers, filmmakers are novelists, musicians are authors. Creativity need not be found only in a single field. Artists are diversified, talents tend to blend into one another. It's kind of amazing how many genre filmmakers were in bands, for example. Not surprising, though, as horror is to cinema what rock and roll is to music. Horror and rock are both subversive, rude, and don't want to play by the rules. I went from writing short stories at 12 to rock journalism at 16, interviewing the likes of Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix when I was still a teenager. Like our guest today, I ran a psychedelic light show called Dr. Heidegger's Experiment in High School, something today's guest and I have in common, and then into screenwriting to directing and into podcasting. Filmmaking is the ultimate composite art form, combining music, photography, design, acting, editing, and so many other intangibly defined elements that it could not possibly be accomplished by a single artist. But then, in the world of cinema, okay, film, Okay, movies. There are sub-genres aplenty. In the golden age of Hollywood, genre directors were not really a thing. Yes, John Ford specialized in westerns, Alfred Hitchcock in thrillers, but that's not what they exclusively made. Most studios in the studio system were journeymen who directed whatever was assigned to them. Filmmakers would jump from a western to a romance to a comedy to a horror film with nary a blink of the eye. It was only as time passed that there became such a term as horror director. It was the heyday of John Carpenter and George Romero and Toby Hooper that defined the masters of horror, to the point where these filmmakers who loved and excelled at making the skin crawl were only allowed to work in that genre. Alan Arkish came out of the world of rock and roll and is in many ways a product of the Hollywood that preceded him. He is a cinematic jack-of-all-trades, comfortable in comedy, rock and roll, horror, action, you name it. Though not thought of in the horror genre in particular, his rock and roll high school is a timeless classic and one that crosses all the boundaries in stoking love from all of us outsiders. He's produced and directed hundreds of television shows and feature films, but even as a cineast, music seems to be his first and deepest love. We'll dance to his beat right after this. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content that you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all of the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vault, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all current subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will be forever in print only. 
If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use the promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. That's Fangoria.com. So, Alan, which came first for you, music or film? It's a tough one because when I saw uh, The Adventures of Davy Crockett uh-huh. on uh, the Disney show, yeah, I loved it. It, it, it. I was so excited by it, but I became obsessed with the song. <laughs> and so obsessed with the coonskin cap in the song that I forced my parents to buy me a record player. Oh, and that was my only record, and I played it endlessly. The Ballad of Davy Crockett. The Ballad of Davy Crockett. And from there, they bought me uh, Peter and the Wolf. So I played both the, of the them. The Boris Karloff narrated one? No, the one that Sterling Holloway did, oh, yeah, the Disney yeah. one. Uh-huh. So now I had two records. Then a Jerry Lewis record called The Noisy Eater. Now, <laughs> if you've seen my record collection, I have maybe three to 4,000 vinyl Three or four thousand CDs. That kind of intensity, brought to the fact, brought to only three records, could drive you crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> over my, and over and over, over and over again. <laughs> so my parents bought me a um, uh, a radio. They took actually the radio out of the kitchen, and that was in my room, and that became the window into the larger world of listening to radio. So I, I fell in love with the songs on the radio, and loved the stuff. I watched a lot of TV. I saw the Disney movies. You know that I saw Peter Pan was probably my first movie. Yeah, uh, Snow White was the second. Wow! And uh, I know I saw Bambi around that time, and I loved all Jerry Lewis movies. So that was kind of the roots of it. Well, the cartoons and Jerry Lewis had a lot in common, right? Very much so. Yeah. But then I fell in love with westerns, uh-huh. and uh, I remember seeing Shane. Mm-hmm. And the horse soldier. So that's a little later in Rio Bravo. Um, but all of that stuff kind of built up. And I saw, watched a lot of TV. I liked the episodic shows. I liked yeah. the fact that next week you'd see another chapter in it. And so that aspect of it fascinated me. And I liked it. I liked seeing it end and knowing that next week there would be one more. There's going to be more. So this presaged what was going to happen to your career later oh, yeah. on. And we'll we'll get into the television yeah. part of your career, which has been so explosive. Now, the horror part of it was not, was whatever Zachary showed. <laughs> I wish to watch Zachary. Well, you were a Jersey kid. Yes, I was a Jersey, Jersey City, kid. From Jersey City, right? Yeah. So you yeah. and Joe Dante both were. Right. Yeah. And so I was in the tri-state area. So like, I guess if you asked all the filmmakers of a certain generation, what was their biggest influence? They might all say Million Dollar Movie. Yeah. Because if you lived in the tri-state area, you watched it every week, and they'd have all those film packages. And they'd run the same movie all week long. Exactly. So it's that same obsessive things that kids have when they had VHS, and now it's with a DVD, and they watch it over and over again. We used to watch those movies over and over again. So... The Bells of St. Trinian's, I watched oh, yeah. over and over again. And whatever was in that RKO package, so that was King Kong. Mm-hmm. So that's Most where it, dangerous it started game. from. Yeah. 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 So, uh, well, we had that on Channel 9 here in uh-huh. Los Angeles. Okay. So, so it was you know, very similar. Yeah. 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 And But Channel 5 bought the Universal package where all of the classic monsters were. And they, right. they would be late at night on a, on a Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. Or on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I, I read some of the same magazines that you did. The, yeah. The um, Famous Monsters. Exactly. Yeah. But Fort Lee's theaters, the Lee Theater didn't run those kinds of movies, and the Linwood would infrequently run them. Mm. So I'd read about them, but I had not a chance to see many of them. But I do remember seeing... The one where the skeleton flies across the room. Emerjo, House on Haunted Hill. That's it. Yes. I remember seeing House on Haunted <laughs> Hill Castle. at the Lee Theater. Yeah. And did they have the Emerjo effect? Yes, they did. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you were uh, lucky. I had the, 
begged my mother to let me go see the Tingler. <laughs> and, and they had the buzzers? I don't. I didn't get a buzzer. Well, so it was like every third seat. Okay. Yeah. So, but that's great to have actually experienced what Joe did later with with Matt. You yes. Know, exactly. Exactly. So it was music first, but it was a close second. It was yeah. music and television more than movies. Then I would say so. Yeah. But my see, my parents were were my father liked movies a lot and so he would key me in on what movies to watch on television that he liked right so that's how i saw lost horizon which was really a movie that he loved and then i got the book and and read the book ah, and okay. he loved i was a fugitive from a chain gang right paul muni yeah yeah so he loved paul muni Mm. And uh, they took us, uh, we went as a family. I remember going to see North by Northwest and loving it. Wow. And um, the thrill of it all with Doris Day on a summer <laughs> vacation and Lawrence of Arabia in New York City. That was a big day for me. Well, the drive-in movie was birthed in New Jersey. Did you mm -hmm. go to the drive-in? Not very often, no. Ah, okay. Because no. that was, I think, 1933 in New Jersey was the first. We went into the city yeah. on a Sunday a lot to see uh, those big roadshow attractions. So ah. that's how I saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia, West Side Story. Wow. Um, I've been several times to the Roxy and and Radio City Music Hall. I remember seeing Funny Face there. Wow. Um and uh, foreign movies. They, they, we went to see The World of Apu by Satyaji Ray really? when I was 13 years old. That's pretty sophisticated. It was. And I'd never seen another culture. Ah. Uh -huh. And never seen a silent movie with title. I'm sorry, a, a foreign movie foreign with movie titles. Foreign movie with subtitles. So this was an Indian film and it opened a window to a part of the world you never knew existed. Exactly. And a kind of movie that I never knew existed because it's so much like Italian neorealism and every movie I'd seen before that made an emphasis of being slick and beautiful and so forth. So this is the one where the truth of the material and the truth of the actors came first. So it had a documentary like quality. Yes, it, it was not like anything I'd ever seen and it was extremely moving. And then uh, I started... I guess in high school, I remember go seeing that man from Rio because my parents recommended it. And then right. I saw Citizen Kane. Yeah. And I started reading about film. So you began to be, discover it more from the inside than the outside. Yes. Yeah. And so I, it became a course of study for you. Yes, exactly. And I started reading about it. And uh, go, once I saw A Hard Day's Night, that uh. was like... The Beatles on Ed Sullivan and A Hard yeah. Day's Night are two events in my life that are interspersed at very tight. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but I'm teaching at the AFI now. Right, right. And, uh, That's the American Film Institute. Yes, and so we had our beginning classes, and on the first official class, I had various students. I have 140 students from around the world. Wow. And had them stand up and talk about what was the first movie to set them on fire and what movies do they like now. And it's a great way of getting everyone into it and talking in class. And I said, and then I ran for them. Now, these are all millennials. These are all right. 24 to 35. I ran the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, uh, which they had never seen. And this was the first performance? Yes, this is uh, the one that, yeah. that 60 million of us watched. <laughs> and they couldn't get over it. First off, they never... They never visualized the Beatles as being so young. Yeah. On yeah. that show. And they maybe heard about the girls screaming, but seeing it was incredible. And I remember then, that night. Too. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. It was, all the kids in my junior high school combed their hair the other way because it looked longer. Uh huh. <laughs> What's the story that like uh, 60 million people saw it and 1 million started a band the next day? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and they loved the hard day's night. So that yeah. was for me the first time I ever really thought that someone had directed a movie. That word directed by right. made sense. Because here was something that I loved, which was music and the Beatles. And that music had been presented in a musical way. And yet in a narrative as in well. In a narrative that is the visual captured the spirit of the music. Whereas the music stuff I saw before then might be dance related. And, and I remember right. liking Damn Yankees and Seven yeah. Brides for Seven Brothers. But this was different. This was rock and roll. 
Yeah, yeah. And so everything kind of changed then. I remember seeing A Hard Day's Night in my local theater, and it was the first movie was Flipper's Greatest Adventure. Oh, my God. <laughs> and somebody in, in the movie, they mention England, and all of the teenage girls in the audience scream just at the mention wow. of England in Flipper's movie. So it was pretty wild. Now, your dad was an artist, right? Yeah, he was a painter. So, and he made his living that way. Well, he tried to. Ah, okay. Okay, he went to art school, and he went to uh, a Pratt in Brooklyn. And he couldn't make a living as a painter, so he went into the family business. Which was? Which was embroidery. Ah. Am I, uh, sort of related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, um, everyone in my family and cousins and everyone had come from the same part of Poland, uh, starting in the 20s and certainly in the 30s. To, and then after the, the Holocaust, the ones left came over. Right. And they all worked in northern New Jersey in these embroidery plants that they built wow. up. And so they were all related business-wise and came from the same town, a town called Kalish. Wow. Yeah. And so they were all of that type and heard Polish, Yiddish growing up, French, English. It was all this big mixture. You Did know. you have brothers and sisters? I have a sister, yeah. 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 And was she also influenced by movies and music? Uh, yes, Yes, yeah. definitely. But you see, I had the role then of the older brother who passes on the records. Right, right. So you opened the doors. I for opened her. the door. Yeah. I took her to see Paul Butterfield Blues Band, which wow. may have been the first concert she ever saw. What was the first concert you ever saw? I saw. Okay, it wasn't stages. I went to see a Murray the K show, ah, but not the, the one with Beatle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Not the big one at the Brooklyn Paramount. Mm -hmm. He used to go around to Jewish community centers and places and make money with these small shows of like three or four or five groups. Right. And they'd all lip sync. Uh -huh. And this was the first time I ever came across African Americans. I see. And I remember going to the temple and seeing these guys and just being attracted to all these people men's kind of hanging out and joking and, and having fun and that sense of a unity, even though I didn't know what it meant or whatever. And then they would sing. I remember it was Gene Chandler saying Duke of Earl. Wow. And, wow but we're he going back here. So that yeah. was really, but I got this feeling from it that I also years later tried to capture in the temptations. Yes. You know, yes. but then, uh, I saw a lot of folk music at Palisades Amusement Park, which really? was a big amusement park. At Palisades Park, sure. Yeah. We, we know that song. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they used to have a folk show from there every Tuesday night called the Jerry White Show. Uh -huh. And uh, he would broadcast live. And uh, some of the artists he had was the Simon Sisters, which I was hopelessly in love with. Wow. Because that's Carly Simon and her sister. Yes. Richie Havens who wow. opened Woodstock, used to was a regular. Yeah. Dave Van Ronk, who is uh, the inspiration for Lewin Davis. Um, Patrick Skye, Jesse Colin Young, whoever wow. was around in the folk clubs at the time would come out, and for 25 cents, you'd get into Palisades and watch the show. Wow. that's uh, Lip-synced or not. No, those <laughs> no this were, was the live all folk live. Yeah, okay. And do it on the radio, nice. and then... I had already started listening to Dylan. The first Dylan record I bought was The Times They Are Changing. Uh -huh. And um, a friend of mine, we read this ad that said Bob Dylan was appearing at um, Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. So we immediately sent away for tickets. We spent $5.50 on those tickets. Ouch. I know. <laughs> we all thought, the four of us, that we would be sitting practically on the stage. Yeah. So we took the subway out to Forest Hills, and uh, went inside, and Dylan was introduced by Jerry White, our hero. Right. And he played, you know, the folk songs, but he also played things like Desolation Row. Uh-huh. Because he was in that transitional phase there. Where everybody hated him going electric, yeah. Well, that was going to happen that was happening soon. Later. Because as soon as the first half ended, there was some kind of movement on the stage and equipment being moved around, and we bought beers. That was the first time I've ever bought beer. So many, <laughs> so many kids deluging the stands that they didn't check my ID. So we spent all our money buying beer, and then Murray the K comes out, which is like alien territory, okay, wearing a bright red suit. 
And Murray used to do this Mia Surrey talk, this language he had. Uh-huh. And he was going to introduce this. He said something like, there's rock music, there's folk music, and then there's Bia Zabi Dia Zillin. And oh. in comes crashing Maggie's Farm. Wow. So you have that Dylan band of Robbie Robertson, Al Cooper, all those guys playing there, and they played, and the audience started booing. Oh, my God. This was only the second Electric Dylan concert. He had played wow. two weeks earlier in Newport. So it pissed off the purists. Yes, and without, there was no rock press. There was no way to know anything. Right. And uh, he went through the whole set and it was booing and people charging the stage and what so forth. What did you forth. think? I was at first, you know, I loved the protest songs, but I already had Bringing It All Back Home, so I liked that. Right. I was confused that the people I was around who looked like college kids with a little bit of long hair, who I thought were, that was who I thought I would become, were so angry about this. And yet, <laughs> and at a certain point in the concert, I think it was towards the end, he sang the song, Something's Happening Here, but you don't know what it is, Mr. Mr. Jones. Jones yeah. Exactly. And he got to the verse about, you've been to co- college, uh, the professors all like your looks. Um Lawyers and crooks, you've, you're very well read. It's well known. Something's happening here. And you don't, you don't know, know what, what it, it is. is, do you, Mr. Jones? Yeah. And me and my oldest friend, Dennis Benson, looked at each other, and Dennis said, he just nailed everybody in this stadium. <laughs> and right then there, I, I said, okay, I'm on his side. Yeah. He just showed us you know, what we had to know. And rock and roll breaks the rules. Yes, and he came out for the encore and played like a Rolling Stone. Uh, we went home happy. <laughs> I guess so. Well, th- this has been such a big part of your life, but the yeah. fi- how did the Fillmore East happen? You started working there, doing a light show, doing yeah. all kinds of stuff. Well, I then also around that time, I also saw uh, The Knack. Oh, wow. And all those British kitchen sink dramas, because I, now I'm going to the movies. Right. So this is Richard Lester. This is Richard that. Lester, yeah. who I adored. Yeah. Uh, who had also done A Hard Day's Night, of course. Exactly. And I saw Morgan, and I saw Loneliness at a Long Distance Runner, yeah. and um, uh, A Taste of Honey, all these movies that spoke to me. And that weren't from Hollywood. That were not from Hollywood. And so now I was absorbing all this, and I transfer. I became a DJ at the first college I went to. I had my mm-hmm. own radio show. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Art, yes. Yeah. I mean, my dad was an art student who couldn't make a living as an artist either. So we're See, all we're, there. we're completely bonding. <laughs> Brothers. So, w- w- what day of the week was your show? Do you remember? Uh, it was, I think, on Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Yeah. yeah. Okay, mine was on Fridays. I was at an all-men's school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh, I'm sorry. I know. Franklin (laughs) and Marshall College in Amish country. Oh, my God. Yes. So, And the 60s were happening. So this is 1966 into 67. And there was nothing to do there but listen to my records. So they had this radio station, and uh, I went down there to, you know, meet all the guys who like records, but... They weren't that interested in records. They they were interested in in radio equipment. Oh, they the nerds. wanted. They didn't care what you played. <laughs> they liked to turn the dials. <laughs> so they gave me the Friday afternoon show, which then became Friday afternoon till Friday night. So I was on the air for like six hours. Nice. And I stopped playing the top forty. Although frankly, it was a great top forty back then. Yeah, yeah. I 66. just would bring all my yeah. records and play them. Nice. You know, and so. That's what we kind of share. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so I transferred. I got to NYU film school and I lived on 10th Street and 2nd Avenue. And about four blocks, three blocks south of that was the Village Theater, mm-hmm. which was basically an old vaudeville movie house uh, and was also a Yiddish theater back in the 20s. Wow. And further down was a place called the Anderson Theater, which had also been a Yiddish theater. This had been the center of that kind of theatrical life. And it was a combination of Polish people and um, a lot of old Jews, uh, (laughs) because there was still a lot of the dairy restaurants around, and beatniks. Wow. Allen Ginsberg lived a block and a half from me. So this is pre-hippie days. We're in the Well, in my building... 
Is language an issue on this? Not at all. Okay. In my building was an organization called the Motherfuckers (laughs) that were hippies and had a very simple uh, uh, ethos. Yes. They basically believed that all things should be free. Okay. All right. And so they were- Sort of like today with uh, the ownership of art. (laughs) Yes. They are anarchists. So the hippie thing in the village was catching on, and I found myself- kind of in one of the centers of the universe as far as I was concerned. So I saw, uh, and now I'm going to the movies all the time. Yeah. You know, there were double bills. Uh, so there was no question about going to film school. That was your passion. That's that was what, my passion. Music I, was what you lived and film was what you studied. And it took two years to convince my parents that I wanted to go to film school. Mm. I kind of was an assault. Also, but once I got into college, I was a great student but the things that they had wanted me to, to learn like, and become like a lawyer or something, I wasn't good at them. I was great at the liberal arts stuff. So <laughs> yes. it was like, okay, we give up. You know? So now I'm at NYU. Good choice, though. Yes. <laughs> it turned out to be. <laughs> it turned out great. And I was living in the middle of all those repertory theaters. Wow. You know, and I remember when uh, there'd be a Godard movie one month and a Truffaut the next and Alan Renee and I mean it was this whole thing and and go, going to movies and the Anderson Theater started out becoming a rock theater hmm. and I saw the opening night which was Big Brother and the Holding Company wow. first New York concert I interviewed Janice did you <laughs> yes I did and I she remember was her really... well because she worked at the played the Fillmore yeah yeah she was so drunk when I interviewed oh, her now there's a and, shock and yeah what was she Sweet, drinking that night uh, that was remember? Jack it was Jack Jack yeah. When she uh, played the Fillmore East with her solo band. Oh, yeah. One of my jobs was to bring uh, food and drink and stuff to the bands. The Pearl Band. Yeah. Yeah, She was drinking that night, that weekend, Dr. Pepper mixed with uh, Southern Comfort. Oh, my goodness. I know. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So the... uh, The friendly pepper upper, yeah. The Anderson Theater started... I saw it. Country Joe and the Fish there. I saw Cream in the Village. I saw all uh, these bands. And then the Fillmore opened, and I started to go there as just a, a regular, you yeah. know. And so I saw Big Brother again. I saw The Doors. I saw Jimi Hendrix Experience, and the opening act was Sly and the Family Stone. Wow, yeah. And over that summer, <laughs> so this is the summer of 60, 60 Seven, 68, 68, 68. I got a job. One of my roommates had a job as an usher, and he didn't want to work both nights. I couldn't understand that. Yeah. And so Free I music. got one of his nights, and then I got the job. So now every – I was in film school all week, and every Friday night I'd show up at the Fillmore at about 5 o'clock, and they we'd, talk, we'd got our T-shirts and everything and stay there till 5 in the morning. Wow. Friday and Saturday night. 12-hour gig. <laughs> and everyone was a rock uh, connoisseur. You know or what snob. I mean? <laughs> yes, because we were all so into the bands. Yes. And now you got to hear them at the best theater with the best sound. And you kind of knew that Friday night first show would be exciting Friday night late show would be excellent. <laughs> Saturday night early show would be hungover. And Saturday night late show was the one where they reached for the stars. That's great. Yeah. So I, I was an usher for about four months, five months, six months. So that meant I guided the people to their seats at the top of the aisle. And there was like five people on your crew. This is funny. Okay. So there's five people on your crew. And of course, Everyone had slightly different tastes. And if you really loved a band, you would get switched around so you could be down front for the Saturday night late show or Friday night late show of your favorite of the weekend. And um, that weekend, there's a band that had been the Yardbirds and were now new. Oh, I know what's coming. And so we saw they came out and they played Train Kept the Rolling, their first song, and that's the Yardbirds big song and it was the Led Zeppelin and they completely destroyed the headliner who was the Iron Butterfly who had the oh, number God. one album in the country in Vida, so now yeah. <laughs> all of us wanted to be down front for Saturday Night Late Show 
and they so destroyed uh, Iron Butterfly on the Late Show that the butterfly switched with them, so they wouldn't have to follow them. Oh wow! And so this I, was the birth of Led Zeppelin. Exactly, and I got Saturday Night Late Show <laughs> down front, and I kind of lay down on the floor and just let the Zeppelin wash over me, and I'm. F- Four songs into the set, someone taps me on the shoulder. And I look up, and there's three guys, and they've got tickets for, like, the fourth row in the middle. And those seats are all full. Now, that means someone's in the wrong seats. Right. And the Zeppelin, can you imagine what the volume was like at a distance of 20 feet? (laughs) And so I have to go in there and get these guys out. First of all, I have to convince them that those are blue tickets and not green tickets. Okay. Right. They were having a little problem with the colors. And um, get them out and get these other guys in. Well, everyone is screaming, sit down, sit down, sit down. Oh, ouch. <laughs> I ended up back on the aisle and nothing could have moved me. You because, were happy. Oh, man. Days and confused the first time you ever hear it. Oh, man. Or uh, a whole lot of love. Yep. Yeah, and so happened. after a couple months of that, I got a job. I switched over and became part of the stage crew. And so I... You just to buy the uh, beer and wine and soda and stuff and food for the bands and set up the, the stage. So now I was coming in at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Fridays and uh, setting up the dressing rooms and doing all that and Saturday also. And so a good part of my week was there and then eventually became part of the light show. When I graduated, see, Bill Graham was really good to me. That's great. Bill let me have the theater to make my student film. Wow. Gratis. And wow. the guys who were on the various electronic crews and, and helped me plug in my lights into the, you know, into the set, the right kind of electricity and all this stuff. And that was so great. So, and I got to know the light show well, and they did the titles for my student film, like um, wow. James Bond title thing. <laughs> oh, how you cool know? was that? And that was the Joshua Light Show. Oh, the, Joshua Light Show was the most famous light show. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. then Josh left that light show, and they asked me to join, and I became part of Joe's Lights. Wow. And so for in the next year, until the Fillmore closed, I was not only working on the stage crew, but I was also working with the light show. The light show was so much fun. Oh, yeah. Mine was Dr. Heidegger's Experiment, which is named after a Nathaniel Hawthorne story. Oh, okay. Horror story, naturally. So you also were, in the Corman years, some of the most exciting times at Roger Corman's company. Yeah. How did that come about? I know you and Joe both, your first feature film was Hollywood Boulevard, which you co-directed. It was, it's funny how it's all connected. Yeah. Um, so the, the population of the people on the stage crew and the ushers and so, and so forth was about half of them were at NYU. And the stage crew was composed of NYU film students and the theater students. It's one of the quirks of history that at the point when rock and roll as a presentational form in theater, which hadn't really coalesced yet. I mean, what was being done on the West Coast was a dance concert, right? you know, with a decent sound system by someone by the name of Hanley. But earlier than that, it was, well, when the Beatles played Shea Stadium, their voices came through the sound system that announced the ball game. (laughs) So we're like... Tweeter horns. Yes. (laughs) And... When they converted over the Village Theater to the Fillmore East, right next door, when I say right next door, I mean one foot away, was a New York NYU theater school. Uh And there was no way for all, just like in, we're talking about all the people who love movies and so music and made these huge steps forward, those people were ready to do that in theater, but there was no jobs because the... Theater was all seniority. You either Broadway or you're way, you know, off Broadway. And right. so they all walked next door and started working at the Fillmore. Wow. And raised the level of sound systems and lighting and everything. And so it was all this mix of NYU people with playwrights who were working on the stage crew and so forth. And in the midst of this, after the Fillmore closed, we were still friends. John Davison worked at the Fillmore. Right. Who's, and also was at NYU and, and was a friend of Joe's. And John used to run cartoons and film clips 
between the second and third act, we felt that we didn't want the audience to just sit there in the dark. Right. Wise idea on certain nights. Uh, <laughs> and so John would pick an appropriate piece of film. It was his inspiration to run the final scene of King Kong with the airplanes attack Kong right. just before the Jefferson airplane went on. It ended oh. up on their live record. <laughs> How great. Yeah, John How was great. awesome that way. Yeah. So, he, he also ended up being the producer who did Piranha and he did um, um, Airplane, yes. lots of other stuff. And so we were all friends and our teacher was Scorsese. So Marty, That's a nice thing. That was very nice. He had not made any movies except for Who's That Knocking at My Door. Right. Then he gets hired to do Boxcar Bertha. And by Roger Corman. By Roger Corman. And Roger is making a, a Night Call Nurses movie, and the director doesn't is not working out. So he's with Marty on location or wherever it was, and he said, you taught film school. Who's a good student? Now, just for those who don't know quite the, the lineage, yeah. when... Roger bought a couple of foreign films that he knew had new scenes to be in. And I can't remember the name. Oh, uh, the Russian one. The uh, Russian yeah, science, science fiction, fiction one. Movie, yeah. yeah, he thought, well, who could do this? Maybe there's a smart film student. So he actually blind called the head of UCLA and said, who's your best film student? And they sent over Francis Coppola. Wow. And that's how the tradition started. And then Bogdanovich and and Robert Town and all these people. So now it was working all right. Now Roger had his own company and he needed someone instantly. So Marty gave him Jonathan Kaplan's number. Roger calls Jonathan Kaplan, who doesn't believe it's Roger because... (laughs) John Davison used to do Roger imitations. Uh, do and you have one? Most people who've worked for him have one. Do you? Yes, do? he kind of talks like that, but they do it better than I do. Very yeah. stentorian. Yes, and, and, yeah. and he's he, all the imitations don't capture how quite how funny he is. <laughs> and uh, Jonathan can't believe it's Roger Corman, so he hangs up on him, and then uh, Roger calls him back, and so Jonathan gets hired to do. Night Call, Night Call Nurses. Nurses, yeah. And he comes out two weeks later, he's directing, and John came out because John worshipped Roger to sort of be an assistant, and Danny Opatashu came to help write, and had John and uh, Jonathan and Danny have known themselves since grade school. And I am broke because the light show is falling apart. I'm driving a cab in New York, and Jonathan gets to do student teachers, and I'm with John, and, and he's visiting in New York, and he says, just you know, get some money, come out there. Something's going to happen, you know, because we all got these jobs, yeah. you know, and... Uh, Not that they paid enough to live oh, on, but... And the, <laughs> those instances of how they got the jobs. I mean, you know the story how John Davison got his job. No, tell me. Okay, so it's Roger's birthday, and these guys are all fanatic fans, and John Davison and Joe Dante have a huge collection of 16-millimeter films. Yeah all of which are illegal, okay? <laughs> and they're stolen army prints and all this kind of stuff. Oh, my God. And so they decide, and they have a huge collection. They specialize in Roger Corman films. Right. So the idea comes up, let's have a birthday party for Roger. It's his birthday. And we will run Little Shop of Horrors. And he'll tell us all about it, okay? So that seems to work. And then Roger's going to come to the birthday party, and then Julie Corman finds out that uh, they're going to run this movie. And he, where did you guys get it? And they, she finds out that it's a stolen print. Uh-huh. So she goes to Roger incensed and says, you have people working for you who have stolen prints of your movies. <laughs> Not understanding quite the number of steps it takes to, to acquire but, them. Yeah, <laughs> it isn't exactly coming out of Roger's pocket, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, what do you mean? He says, they have these prints, of illegal prints of your movies. They have spent over $100 to buy prints of your movies. You should fire them. And Roger goes, they spent their own money to have a copy? Yes, over $100. Imagine what would happen if I paid them. And that's how John got his job. That's great. Yeah, Roger's been on the show, and he's so much fun. Oh, yeah. And such a great storyteller and remembers everything. Yes. And so that was the atmosphere. And so I ended up coming out here I lived at John's house for a little bit in the front room and then moved out to the valley 
and lived in the garage of Jonathan Kaplan on a foam mattress on the floor. And uh -huh. Jonathan lived there and a bunch of Jamie Anderson, who was the DP on all the right. Corman movies and so forth. And then uh, Joe needed some help in the editing room. So they needed someone to just drive the film around. There was so much work happening. You know, this was right around Cries and Whispers and right. Big Bad Mama and all this stuff. So John and Joe got together their own money. Mm -hmm. And each paid me $25 a week. I got $50 a week on wow. their own part because I couldn't tell Roger that they needed one more person. <laughs> so for about a month, three months or so, I worked like that. And then they got, the, got me paid. And so I was in the editing room with them uh, cutting, you know, eventually there were so many trailers. Joe was cutting like the big trailers and I was cutting everything else. And that's when Amarcord happened and this. So now, but there's so much work. I mean, we did a new ad campaign every three or four or five days. Wow. And, uh, well, there and, was so much output, the original productions, as well as the, the art house uh, yes. acquisitions. Yeah. Constantly. And we were always then, because once Roger got to know us, he really trusted us. So we would get invited to all the screenings. It was a wonderful uh, nexus mm -hmm. of film students who understood world cinema and had been fans of Roger Corman. Imagine now Roger Corman, who's buying world cinema. Right. And he finds all these people who work for him know his movies backwards and forwards. So it's a trust situation. He doesn't have to tell us at a certain point how to sell these things. Right. And so, look, we all would not be where we are without Roger. Right. But our input into this situation was unique. And it's one of the reasons that that class of the 70s, so to speak, with Jonathan Demme and Ron Howard and all and, and John Sayles and, you know, Joe and Paul Bartel and all this. Yeah. It worked out well for everybody because there was this collegial sense and appreciation for what Roger as a producer and a director could bring to you in terms of not just work, but knowledge. Yeah. And then you were able to. Make the cheapest ever movie made That's by, true. by New World Boulevard. Pictures. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's funny. Just two nights ago, Roger came over my house, and all of us who were New Worldies from that period were having a pizza party in oh. honor of the 40th year since Rock and Roll High School. Which we're about to get into. Yeah. And so uh, we all had all these toasts to Paul Bartel and to Jonathan Demme and to... Candace Riles and the people who aren't here anyway. and Dick Miller Joe did a lovely tribute to Dick mm. we watched a little bit of Bucket of Blood ah. and then uh, we watched some of Hollywood Boulevard and Roger had I, I agree who watches it anymore but his reaction was my God, that's so well cut. <laughs> that's you a really nice pulled it off. He, he was seeing it with fresh eyes. <laughs> that's a nice thing to hear. Isn't it? <laughs> 40 years ago. Yeah. So that led to the classic rock and roll high school. Thank you. I mean, this is a movie. It's 40 years old now. Yeah. And I guess there's a, a, a brand new special edition celebrating yeah. it. What's it feel like to create something that has gone on so long and it's as popular as ever? Maybe even more so. It's extremely gratifying because it's not like it's a famous movie. Right. But it's beloved. And For sure. I mean, you're still seeing T-shirts. So they're still making yeah. Ramones T-shirts, and that's because of that movie. And the connection that I get over and over again, whenever I'm working on a show, especially, you know, people look at who the director is, and then the IMDb, and then they realize that I did Rock and Roll High School, or word gets out, and crew members all the time come up to me and say how much they like it yeah. and what circumstances they saw it under. Now, yeah. the guys usually say stuff like, I watch it every day after school and we all got loaded, <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yes. But the, I happen to think that the reason for its continued success and appreciation is the Riff Randall character. Mm. The PJ Ramones Solis, are wonderful, yeah. but if it had just been a Ramones movie, I don't know if it would have been that. And was it made to be a Ramones movie, or they were the band that was available and willing? It was made to be a Riff Randall movie. Ah. It was made to be about being a rock and roll fan and what music can mean for, to you. And 
I'm sure it's absolutely true for you that when you were in high school and you loved these bands, you identified with them. And that they were a huge part of your of your fantasy life and your identity and who you hung out with. And that role in music was was the impetus for making the movie. And the character of Riff Randall was myself combined with these three women who came to the Fillmore East all the time and used to Mm -hmm. hang out in the lobby. Janice, Diane, and Gail. And they came every week and got the cheapest tickets because they were, and would come downstairs and we'd talk rock. They liked more of the British bands. I liked some of the hippie bands. Right. And we would have these wonderful discussions. And then if there was empty seats, I always got them tickets. Nice. And when they found out that... uh, the Stones were coming to New York in 1969. They got online at Madison Square Garden. They cut school, and they got their picture in the paper being first online. Wow. <laughs> and that's the idea in the movie. So that's PJ Souls. That's, that's PJ Souls. Yeah. And uh, Gail, who I found recently saw down in San Diego, and I sat side by side in the third row of Madison Square Garden uh, watching the Rolling Stones in 1969. Wow. And the concert that's in Gimme Shelter, that's the one they filmed. Yeah, yeah. And so that... I saw them when Stevie Wonder opened for them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they were great. Then. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that impetus of making that about those those young women and making Riff... Riff is a countercultural character. She's against the establishment. She's empowered... She doesn't take shit from anybody. Mm-hmm. And that sense of her has made it so that 70% of the people who talk to me about rock and roll high school are women. Wow. Yeah. Constantly about how Riff Randall's a really great, part, cool character. And it freed me up to talk back to my parents or freed me up to not believe my teachers. Wow. Or here's a beauty. I went to this, I would say she was in her 40s. And I was shooting in Nashville, and she was a day player, an actress. And she said, I was just curious who the director was. And then I wondered what the first movie, and oh, my God, it's rock and roll high school. And I was in Catholic school and junior high school. And me and my, and it was terrible. We had to wear these uniforms a certain length and couldn't talk in class and all this stuff. And so we went out on a Friday night and saw rock and roll high school at midnight. And we went every week after yes. that. Yes. We <laughs> hiked up our skirts and, so and used to walk around the schoolyard singing Ramon songs. And so thank you. I realized then girls could do it too. That's gratifying. It, and so that's really the point of view and how the, how it's lasted. And, you know? and, what do you think of it when you see it now? Um, do you think about what all the, the the tough stuff was while you were making it, or do you get lost in the movie? I don't get lost in it anymore, but I do, and I don't react anymore to the tough stuff. I look at the audience and watch them watching it. And if it's one of those outdoor shows, which seems to be very popular, right. and those are the only ones I've actually been to, yeah, um, it's always the same. It's always like... Again, it's the majority or women are three for four friends sitting on a blanket drinking wine. Three of them have clearly seen the movie a hundred times because they know every <laughs> line and they keep poking the fourth one. <laughs> They're <laughs> the turning her on to coming it. Up. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And I accomplished this thing in the movie where I made the concert film the way I felt it should be mm-hmm. in a fictional film. Right. It's not, and that energy and that sense that I got watching Hard Day's Night, the scene I should have known better with a girl like you, where they're in the train car and it's handheld. And at one point- And John snorts a bottle of Coca-Cola. Right. Yes. Yes. And they're playing cards and they're singing. (laughs) And at one point, the camera starts dancing. Yeah. And that was such a moment for me. Yeah. About an awareness of, of that, that- the concert scenes, I wanted it to make it so that it was like a concert, that it was as hard and slam and rock as I could and let you know that it was also funny. That's why D-U-M-B is in there right. when they spell that up and gab the words to gab at gab hey and the words, that, you know. Was uh, the script before there was a band cast or did the Ramones? The script was written with the band. It was just, you know. Once, a generic once it, band. Yeah, once it wasn't 
uh, Girls Gym, you know, mm-hmm. which is Joe McBride did a great job making it Girls Gym. And right. we had, I think, one of the girls who was a famous critic for the report. Yes, yeah. like the world's authority on Lubitsch and, yes. and John yeah. Ford. Um, and he wrote Rock and Roll High School. He wrote, <laughs> and it was his idea to blow up the school. Ah. That came from from him, and I didn't agree with him at uh-huh. first. It took him like about a week to get me convinced. It was his idea also. It came from this idea of something that had happened to someone in his family, I think, that the the school had gone on strike. Now, in his mind, he has different people, you know, that he knows right. for those people. But in my mind, it's Gail and Diane and Janice. And you're the director, so that's what ends up on the screen, and, right? <laughs> and then Russ and Richard came, and, and once Roger said it could be Disco High... I felt that I needed comedy writers, and that's when Russ and Richard came in. Right. right. I was doing publicity at Universal when a little movie called Heart Beeps was made. Oh, my God. So yes. I'd love to—that was your first studio movie. Yeah. So I would love to hear what the contrast was from going from this crazy world of New World Pictures and Roger Corman to the more uh, jacket-and-tie world of major studio Universal. You know— Thanks for asking that, okay? Because it was such a, a disastrous experience for me. Really? That I have stayed away from it. I never saw it again after it opened. The really? Movie, the movie was... Neither t- did anybody else. That's okay. No, this, is, this, is, yeah. this came around. <clears throat> yeah. The movie um, was taken away from me, re-edited. Really? Yes. And the switchover... You know, working for New World, you're around all people your age, and they're all film students. And they love cinema. And they love cinema, and none of them have worked in more than two movies. If you worked on three movies, you were a veteran, you know? (laughs) Everyone's on their first, second, or third movie, mostly. And then this great opportunity came along to work with um, the producers of Taxi Driver and Close Encounters and the script. The Phillipses, yeah. Yeah, and... And you got Andy of, Kaufman and Bernadette Peters. Yes, and so hubris set in with me. Hmm. And the things that I saw of, in that movie to doing were not the right things, okay? So I'm going to be, come right out and say I had the wrong conception. I thought I could make a love story about the birth of love with these two robots that was like a silent movie, like a Frank Borzaghi movie. Nice. Okay, so how nuts is that, right? <laughs> yes. They think I'm going to make a crazy movie like Rock and Roll High School because I've got Andy Kaufman. Right. In retrospect, they were right, uh-huh. okay? And I was the youngest person on the crew. Mm. There was only three women on the whole set, the script supervisor and the women's customer and the, and the uh, press agent. Everybody else is much older and a man, and there's obviously no sense of camaraderie because they punch in at Universal every day. Right. And, that and Stan me. Winston had created the yes. costumes for and the robots. I was really dumb about not utilizing Stan Winston more. I have mm. to say I was intimidated by that whole thing. Mm, by the studio experience and by the use of monster masks and the robot stuff and i was much too conservative the mechanical aspects all of that kind of i had never done that you know and i just i should have worked better with stan and taking taking all the ideas that he had because he's genius Mm. And I was too afraid of it and had this narrow concept of what the movie should be. Fascinating. And this is all in retrospect because recently I had to, they came to me about doing a commentary, which Uh at first I didn't want to do. Mm. And then I I said, you know what, shape up, you know, confront it, take a look at what you've done. Because I felt always... You know, it was a failure artistically. It was a failure commercial-wise. Mm. So I watched it again and then did the commentary and came at it um, and not being negative. Right. But saying, I think this is wrong. I wish I had done this this way. But being honest, yeah. Completely honest yeah. about it and seeing what I, you know, the overall effect of, of the choices that I made. So it was really interesting to go back and say, you know what? 
it's too closed the universe there doesn't seem to be any other world and the transition into having real money was a rocky one for me hmm. i kept thinking we shouldn't spend this you know that's not my job you were worse you used to saving pennies yes yeah and so the little parts of the the guy who i did the commentary with and i think is coming out in kino lorber um he said, oh, when I said about the silent movie, that makes complete sense now. It do, It's a very charming movie. What you were trying to do was, was uh, well, Frank Borzaghi or, or Preston yeah. Sturgis in a way. Yeah, you know? and I just didn't go wacky and far enough. Yeah, interesting. You know, but that led me to get crazy, which was a different experience. Right, which was another rock and roll movie. And I was trying to get at the heart of what I was just talking to you about. I wanted to capture the film more East. Wow, yeah. I wanted to go back to something that I really knew. Well, it was kind of a love note to the film more It East. was. And in the course of just about getting it ready to be made, where they said, we don't want to do it as a period picture. Oh, really? Yeah, we don't. We want you to change this and make it more like airplane in a rock and roll theater, which I did. <clears throat> right. You know? Right. And, I love that movie. Yes, and it's very, very funny. Yeah. And it's my my thought on that movie, and I I like it. It's there's two thousand punchlines, and there's only fifteen hundred jokes. <laughs> well just, put. It's like a, it's very Preston Sturgis, and yes. it's it's like a Bruegel painting with with uh, jokes. Yeah, you know? it's like a million things going on and a at great once. soundtrack. Great soundtrack, yeah. and so proud of how much music we use in it. It's. It's me being a rock critic and a director at the same time. That's why everyone sings Hoochie Coochie Man. Yeah. That's yeah. why all that stuff is in there. Captain Cloud and all these kinds of music, et cetera. Uh, that's great. We only have a few minutes left, and oh. I don't want to okay. uh, ignore the huge change in your career that came with television. You yes. have produced and directed hundreds of hours of TV, including a series that I directed an that's episode correct. of, on yes. Witches of East End. Um, and so tell me the difference, how, how that you were now doing dramas, you're doing comedies, right. you're doing all kinds of things. Like I talked about in the open. Yeah. And you know what, when you, when you talked about it in the opening, what I say, and I teach this to my students at the AFI, being a director and episodic, you can make it a really great experience for yourself. If you think of yourself as a great studio musician, mm -hmm. If you think of yourself as part of the wrecking crew. Yes. You know what I mean? In yeah. the morning, you're playing behind the Ronettes. In the afternoon, it's Brian Wilson. And you listen to what the composer wants. And then if you're good, you add those drum beats at the beginning of Do Be My Baby and you're remembered forever. <laughs> so that's the, the thing about episodic. And then also because you're working in a style you learn that style, and as a director, you learn by watching it what it feels like to you as you interpret it, what wide-angle lenses and soft light mean, what long lenses and hard light mean, just because you're working within that genre, and you take all that stuff and you put it in your quiver, so to yeah. speak, of artistic choices. I learned to love episodic because... You're using all of the latest technology. You're doing different things all the time. You're being called upon to exercise different muscles. Yes. And as the director of so many pilots, you help set the tone for what these are. Your and pilots that's where are more I took like all those tools and made these new things of pilots and got to come up with the style for the show. Which is amazing. Well, yeah. Alan... Thank you so much for oh, being here. Oh, thank you, it's Mick. This has been fun. It's nice hanging out and talking. I know. You. We never get a chance when we're working. <laughs> That's true. That's All right. True. Alan Arkish, Rock and Roll High School, 40 years. Thanks for joining us on Post Thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram.
And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.